Hello, everyone. This is Jared Director, President of Columbia Omnicorp and Columbia Omni Studio. Welcome to Columbia Omni Live. This is where we will bring you the latest insider look into the fashion and color industry while we all reimagine this new world we live in. Enjoy this episode and don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date with future episodes. Also, give us a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to see what creative projects we are helping our customers with. Thank you very much and stay safe. From Black Swan Textiles. I've known uh, Keith for uh, several years, not counting how many. And um, I think uh, we'll all find this very interesting. I know that he's had a very interesting career path and he's doing some really interesting things now. Uh, Keith has always been on the forefront of, of technology and pushing uh, innovation in our um, industry. So uh, without further ado, um, hi, Keith. Hey, how you doing, Mitch? Happy I'm Mr. Day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're going to break out soon. <laughs> um, so uh, the first question, and for, for Keith, this is actually, uh, I think, uh, a really interesting question about his career path and how he's gotten here, uh, because I think that a lot of what he's done over the years uh, with innovation and technology has really kind of pushed the envelope, pushed the industries uh, farther. And it really kind of informs uh, what he's doing today. So um, without further ado, I, I ask you, Keith, how did how'd you get here? Uh, a long path. Uh, I basically, I went to college. I was an, I was an art major, and I, I drew pictures. And my first job out of college was uh, in Green Bay, Wisconsin. There used to be a department store called Prangies. It was uh, a regional department store, and they... They advertised in the newspaper, so I drew fashion <laughs> illustrations for uh, for newspaper ads for them. And and you know nobody wants to be stuck in Green Bay. Well, some people like love Green Bay; it's a wonderful <laughs> place, but uh, it's not really it's not really the happening place for for art. So I, um, I eventually moved on to uh, to illustrate for a store in Cincinnati, Ohio, called um, called Pogues. And then I made it out to New Jersey and drew for a store called Haynes, um, H-A-H-N-E-S, in, in beautiful um, Newark. And then um, <clears throat> moved to New York and started freelancing. And I, um, I drew for a lot of stores, Brooks Brothers, uh, uh, Gray Advertising. And then um, I took a gig uh, illustrating for Ralph Lauren and then went on staff as an as a, as a, uh, art director. Um, for gentlemen's clothing, and you know, it was I. I took that job because it was <clears throat> relatively easy. You know, when I was freelancing, I would I was doing three all nighters a week at least. You know, I thought I'd left that behind in college, but little did I know. But, but you know, Ralph was a good place to work because strong brand point of view. Um, you know, uh, emphasis on quality, beautiful headquarters, and I, I worked there probably with some of the most talented you know talented most talented group of illustrators i've seen and that was a that was a a joy and one of the things that they emphasized um was in order to evaluate a design and we we illustrated upcoming designs they had to be super realistic and they had to be color correct and this is all hand rendered stuff this is before illustrator and photoshop 
So we experimented a lot of different ways to, to match colors, anything from overlapping coats of, of magic markers to mixing inks and this kind of stuff. And finally, um, R- Ralph had opened an R&D facility in North Carolina. This was in the early 90s when the textile industry was starting to move away. And so they hired a bunch of industry veterans to work in a facility in Greensboro and do finish development and product development and color development. So these were guys that had worked in textiles all their lives. Um, so I, I visited Greensboro just to see how they managed color. And a, a guy named Ben Bell, who had been working in digital color since literally before I was born, you know, he was working when spectrophotometers were the size of a room. He was, he was involved in that. And he started explaining LAB and all this stuff. And I, I said, why are you spelling out lab? I have no idea what he's talking about. And, but as he explained the, the science of color, it kind of corresponded to what I just kind of done intuitively. You know, I had taken color theory in college and complementary colors and all this kind of crap, but, but never really um, thought of it in terms of hue, lightness, chromaticity, and, and you know, the, the numbers that is, uh, correlate to that. So, you know, I, I, I learned what they did and, and, and took some of their technology to improve what we were doing in New York. But then the opportunity came, came about to actually move to Greensboro. And at the time, you know, um, married at a, at a young daughter and I, I didn't really want her to grow up thinking that was normal. So I, I took advantage of the, the chance to move down to Greensboro and set up um, R and D with Ben Bell. The, 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 we set up our own color lab and I mean, we were, matching colors that were set down on inspiration swatches from, from New York. And we distributed these, these color standards to the mills all around the world. And we evaluated lab dips for men's knits. And so when I came down there, <clears throat> I had never done this before in my life. And, and, and Ben, you know, he had been doing it for years. He had a, you know, the perfect eye. And he could make color corrections, you know, visually on, on colors that we were trying to match. And he could, he could make great comments on color difference for the lab dips. And then I started looking at the software using data color um, uh, Chroma QC at the time. And, and um, I started looking at, you know, the numbers that were associated with it. And so I would measure all the lab dips and he would comment on him. So I started looking at correlation between, okay, what do the numbers say and what does he say? Uh, and all of a sudden, I kind of figured it out. And so he said, Keith, why don't you start making corrections on these, on these color maps we were trying to do? So we, I started using the, the correction software from Data Color and got a pretty good hit rate. And so we, we, we started adopting it. And... Um, and then we started looking at um, at loading. I mean, we, one thing about Ralph Lauren, their colors, they're known for their colors, and they're known for deep, rich colors, colors that kind of push the edge of feasibility. You know, you're loading as much dye onto that substrate as you possibly can while you're trying to maintain your your fastness requirements. So we, 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 well, we worked with... Um, with mills in region, uh, there were still mills um, making fabric for Ralph Lauren products in, in North Carolina and Tennessee and, and that region. So it was a good immersion into, into the industry. So I, I made that switch from the 
creative side to the actual production. And I, you know, I started to see that there were concerns at the mill that had to do with manufacturing and um, could be perceived by design as, oh, those crazy mills know what they're doing. But the fact of the matter is that usually the mills did. So I, I spent about 10 years at Ralph Lauren, and then I, I, I ventured off to work at Fruit of the Loom, where I was the grapes for a while. And I, no, actually, I oversaw their, uh, their domestic dye houses. Uh, imagine domestic dye houses. Uh, and um, traveled all over um, the U.S. looking at them and looking at processes. And not just color, but um, you start to look at other implications of color. There was you know, their, their policy up until that point was to buy the cheapest dyes that they possibly could. And, and they would invite all the dye stuff vendors in to, um, to Jamestown where, where the purchasing office was. And they would just beat these guys and just beat them down in price. And, you know, we looked at, their, you know, other than white, one of the colors that Fruit Loom ran was this navy color. And they were running 20% seconds on, on navy. And in a in a in a mill that's brutal. I mean, um, you're you're running on a small margin, and to lose twenty percent of your your goods uh, due to shade is bad. So we looked at we were working with Clarion at the time, and and they introduced a new line of dyes that had properties to them that were more forgiving in you know to to uh, put up with stuff that happened in a mill. So you know, we ran a trial, and. Um, Ran, matched that shade with these new dyes, and all of a sudden, without changing anything but the dyes, we cut our seconds down to two percent. <laughs> we we doubled our dye cost, but you know the dye cost was minimal at that time, and and you're you're saving a lot more money by 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 reducing your your off shade goods than you are by spending on increased dyes. So you know that was an introduction into you know colors not just red, green, yellow, blue. It's actually it's the, the dyes and chemicals and, and the um, dyeing procedures that go into that. And we had five dye houses at the time, and each one of them was challenged with different, um, different problems. So we, we came up with this, pro- this program called Adopt-A-Mill, Adopt um, and we invited each of the major dye stuff suppliers to, to come and, and basically adopt a mill. You can take over the dye house in, in this facility for six months. You can implement your processes, your dyes, your chemicals, and, and then we're going to evaluate your rate of improvement after those six months. And so um, the, the, it, was a, it was implemented with the, 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 the global CEO of Dystar came in um, back before it was die star but anyway he, he came in from germany and he we're sitting around this room and and he's thinking this is this is great great opportunity and i leave the office thinking all right good plan get back to my office um my boss's boss come in and says sorry you're laid off they had and free loom went free loop went bankrupt but it was one of those ideas that kind of stuck with me i said you know why don't we bring in the expertise of, of guys who have a stake in dyeing and finishing, um, guys who sell products to mills. So from Fruit of the Loom, I went to Target. Um, Target, big box store, um, 90% of their apparel is own brand. So it's, it's designed and developed just like it is at Ralph Lauren or PVH or anybody else. So um, at that time, 
it was in the heyday of lab dips. And um, my boss, Anton Wilson, had just kind of taken a chance talking data color and he, they, had, they had bought spectrotometers and they were looking at this program called Image Master that was kind of on-screen color. And he basically said, okay, set up a pro- program. We're getting killed here um, with all, this, all these lab dips. So we started looking at the technology. And at the time, um, a QTX file, spectral data, was really, other than outside of the mills, it wasn't, it wasn't known. Nobody talked about spectral data um, at the brands. So, you know, having worked um, at Polo and at Fruiloon, we started exploring, okay, what if we can, what if we receive a lab dip, evaluate it, and then send the comments back to the mill with the spectral data and our comments for what we see? And so that kind of took off. It, it replaced faxing the results out. Uh, so we, we actually emailed the, the spectral data. And then I was on a phone one day with uh, a guy named Brad McClanahan from Clariant, who had been our account rep at, at uh, Ralph Lauren. And you know, he, he was responsible for you know, providing us with dyes and stuff. And I said, you know, Brad, I didn't know how good I had it at Ralph. I mean, we, we made our own standards. We can control our own destiny. And here I am at Target, and what are we using for standards? And at the time, they were, I won't even say what they were using, but uh, they were using some of the commercially available standards in the industry. And <laughs> <laughs> there, there were a couple suppliers of that. But I remember one day I got a visit from a dye house manager from Singapore. He had gotten on a plane and flew to Minneapolis just to dispute a lab dip rejection. And he said, he said, are you kidding me? This is a perfect match. You guys saying it's too green. So he pulls out his standard, pulls out his lab dip. We go to the light box. We pull out our standard. <laughs> his standard is, is uh, gray. Our standard is green. And it's the same product number. And he's and he's he's just he's just furious. And and so ha- having been in the dye house, I understood his point of view. And and when when you know the one thing I learned from Ben was if if the dumb if the numbers don't make sense, there's usually a reason. And it's either the you know somebody's colorblind or you got a bad standard or you're using the wrong light source. So sure enough, so I, I talked to talked to I told Brad I said you know. Why doesn't our Chrome? Why, why didn't Clarion start up a, a color standard business? And and shortly thereafter, our Chrome was born, and guys like Doug Bynum, who was on in your on your last session, and um, you know that crew, um, you know, brought about this idea of a of a um, a certified color standard, one that was that that could be relied on, not just as as a visual thing. But the, the data, the underlying data, the spectral data was actually a standard. The physical swatch was just kind of an actor portraying that data. And so using that, we, um, we implemented digital color matching, uh, digital color uh, with all the um, target vendors. And all of a sudden, they had to go from free references that they had in their swatch books to, they had to buy color standards from Acroma, and they were 10 bucks a piece. And, oh, man, for the first couple months, these guys came. You know, there were vendor meetings, and, and 
certain countries, the die houses were more, the, the die house managers were more vocal and they were screaming bloody murder. How, I've got to pay 10 bucks for a standard. But then we started tra- tracking results. And all I know sudden, that guy. Yeah, I know. All of a sudden, <laughs> they were getting approved on the first round rather than the third. And they started calculating their courier costs, if nothing else, and they quickly shut up. So, you know, it, to, to me, that was, you know, a, a program will be successful if it's successful with the mills. And, and they saw that as, as a win for them. So we, we had, uh, at Target, we had seven color offices around the world. And um, when I started there, the remote color offices were basically screening offices. They would receive the lab bips from the local mills. They would look at them, you know, figure out which they thought was the best. They'd measure it, and then they'd, um, they'd send it to us. And, you know, we would get to letter you know, A, A, B, B, C, C, you know, 50 lab dips later, and we're still not approved. So then I, okay, forget the screening stuff, measure everything. And what we found was they did a, people in general do a bad job of screening. I mean, it's, it's, it's not, there, there wasn't anyone particular. It's just, it's a subjective thing. So if we can, if we can convert a color to numbers, let's look at all the colors. And what we found was uh, generally the best shots were within the first three rounds. If you, if you went past three rounds, there was something wrong. And so we, we, um, we changed from screening, and then we basically said, you guys approve yourself. You don't need to send it to Minneapolis to make a decision. You know, our biggest concern was what they said if they rejected, not and because we gave them tolerances on what they had to approve. And you know, if if, if it's off shade, you know, there's three three components: it's either hue, um, lightness, or chromaticity. And um, you know, when people say it's too bubblegummy or it's not what's in my head, that's not very helpful <laughs> to a uh, to a mill. Right. And so we we basically gave them the vocabulary and and trained them on what to say. And how to communicate, and that was successful because we, we empowered the the regions, and you know they had made investments in those people in those offices, so why not use it? And then we eventually um, we not only you know they had the, the the color QC software, but we eventually bought color matching software and laptops for each one of them and trained them on how formulation and correction worked, so they could go around and kind of be the the um, the evangelist for implementing digital color management at the mills because what we saw at the time was a lot of mills would use formulation to to get a color but then they wouldn't do the they wouldn't make the correction using the software they, they'd kind of do it by eye and um so they they helped get that process out uh so i i i stayed at target for a while we got the process pretty much under control I went to Land's End for a couple of years working for a guy named Sid Mashburn, who I knew at Ralph Lauren, who's now a famous menswear designer in Atlanta. But it was, it was a good experience because, you know, I was doing color materials there, but also involved back in design. So seeing that, that connection between the aesthetic and the manufacturing side. And then um, um, JCPenney, um, uh, there was an opportunity to, to take color JCPenney. And at the time, JCPenney was... Uh, they were a, a well-known brand, but you know their 
quality reputation was excellent. A lot of a lot of manuals, quality manuals around the world are based on J.C. Penney, and so I had the opportunity to okay, let's 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 look at color here. So you know, we 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 implemented digital color. Had a great team there, but you know what I always thought was, you know, rather than just digitizing and 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 speeding up the process of them sending us a lab dip, why don't we actually look at what's going on in the mill? Because you can approve lab dips all day long, but then if unless the production dyeing was of the same quality, you know, what's the point? And so we, we came up with um, a program we call Color Accreditation Program. And we, we spent months, a guy named Russ Merritt was our project manager, and he was he was a former Air Force guy, black ops. I mean, he was he was a project guy, and we we were disciplined enough with his direction to actually think this thing through and figure out a, a um, what the cap should be. And you know, we wrote a fifty page document talking about every step of the way, and then we, um, you know, I had talked with Doug Bynum, who was at Acroma at the time, and told him what we we're doing. He said, you know, you should, you should talk to these, uh, these guys over in Tiffic. They're, they're thinking about this. So, so we met with them. We showed them our plan. We said, we, we, we think this works. What, what it was was basically we would evaluate the capability of a mill based on their lab and their die house to, have, to, to see, you know, just what their, what their strengths and weaknesses were. And then if they met a certain level of, of capability, we'd basically say, you don't have to do lab dips. Um, I just want to see what your production looks like. So based on some technology that Natific developed, um, what they could do was a, understanding how a mill works. They, they dye a, a, a lot of fabric. It comes out of the dryer. It sits in load release for a while, while it conditions. And then they swatch it. They bring it into the testing lab. They do their fastness tests, all the internal tests that they're required uh, just as a manufacturer. And then they, they evaluated for shade. So most of the mills we were dealing with were, were measuring it on a spectrophotometer anyway. So we said, tell you what, you, you, you measure it, you store that measurement to a certain directory on your, um, in your, on your desktop. And then the scientific technology basically uploaded that measurement to what we now call a cloud, but was, then was just a, a remote database. And so it gave us instant visibility into every production lot that um, the mills are running. And so who, who cares what the lab dips look like as long as your production is, is consistent. And we saw, since we saw every production lot, we saw whether or not there, there was shading you know, from lot to lot. We had to measure, each, sample each lot multiple times so we saw if there was shading within a lot. And we had thought initially that the privileges that would go with the cap you know, maybe 20% of the mills could do it. <laughs> what we found is 100% of the mills qualified. Once you told them what the expectation was, then it was actually a piece of cake. I, I, I remember we were at this mill in Korea, and I said, I said, okay, show me what you do when a lot comes off, of, uh, off the floor and, and you're, you're evaluating it for, for acceptability. So they pulled a swatch out. They pulled the approved production sample out they approved they pulled their approved lab dip out they pulled out their original physical color standard 
And then they put them on the table and they just kind of stood around and talked. And basically, if they could find one of them that matched, you know, one of these standards, they'd, they'd, sh they'd ship. But um, it took, you know, anywhere from a half hour to an hour to discuss this. And we said, well, I'll tell you what, if it matches our Delta E tolerance and this primary luminate, the secondary luminate, you can ship all day long. And they looked at me like I was from the moon or something. <laughs> but that's what, uh, that's what we set up. And basically, it, uh, it, it simplified the process at the mill. It took away the ambiguity. It clarified what they needed to do to succeed. And we basically just at, at, um, at JCPenney, we had to say that a, the, the standard is a standard is a standard. The standard doesn't change when you get in lab to approve lab dip. It doesn't become the standard. The standard is what um, is what at this point in time, it was what our chroma standard was. So we, we did seven mills in the pilot. And um, I remember presenting it to uh, Peter McGrath, who is a head of um, sourcing and product development at JCPenney. And, and my boss at the time, he said, I don't know if Peter's going to buy this because of what it costs the mills. Um, because it was a fee. I mean, there's a fee involved with cap that the mills pay. But so I put together a presentation. We calculated the cost of lab dips and actually pulled data out of PLM system to show how much mills had been spending um, just shipping lab dips. Forget about everything else. And, you know, so I'm into slide one and he looks at the numbers. He says, good to go. I said, what about the cost? He says, that's the cost of this program is pennies compared to what the mills are absorbing. And if the mills are absorbing costs, we're absorbing costs. So here again, it's this understanding of, of not just the, 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 the price of the product, but the price of the process involved in getting to that product. Right. Total so, cost. Yeah. So we, we basically, we implemented that at, um, at pennies. Um, I got an opportunity to come to Under Armour after that, um, to work for a Janet Fox who was had taken over sourcing there. And um, the challenge there was to move to, you know, implement the cap. But whereas pennies was a predominantly a cotton uh, product, um, Under Armour was, you know, making all athletes better. And so it was performance textiles, which are mostly polyester. And at the time they had a campaign that cotton was the enemy. So, uh, they, we, we had to look at, okay, can we move, is, does this work for multiple substrates? And long story short, it did. And we made the same presentation to the uh, chief supply chain officer about, okay, this, this cap program, we can, we can save lots of money internally. We can speed up our calendar. Literally, we took three months off the product development calendar. And so he saw the presentation and he, he mandated that, that this was a, a, a program that every mill had to um had to subscribe to so so we you know we went from you know i know i know there, there in the past some places you know they want to do a proof of concept and maybe we'll just do this one product or maybe this one brand but you know jim hardy the uh, chief supply chain officer he's jump in man he says if this works it works and it worked so, you know, we, we, we got to implement it. We got to, to see it um, uh, impact the mills. And Under Armour, like most brands, had international vendor summits where 
they sit around and talk about how great the brand is, and then they talk about new policies, and then the and then those vendor interactions. So we we presented the cap um, at the vendor summit, but instead of me presenting it, I had uh, two uh, die house manager from two different mills present my program because you're going to be you're going to be more credible um, to this audience than I am. And so you know, one guy said, you know, it's a great program, but but these guys don't even know the value of their own product. They think it's just courier fees, but it's the real value is in production planning that uh, you, you don't have to, you don't have to worry about sitting around getting an approval. You can, you can schedule your production based on what makes most sense at the mill, not color. So it, you know, they loved it. And as, as, um, as is often the case, when a brand moves, their sourcing around from region to region, you know, for whatever reason, or when a product hits and they can't get enough fabric for one mill, they, they've got a multi-source. And, and in, in most cases, multi-sourcing is like, you know, sourcing guys are slitting their wrists because you're getting differences from fabrics from one region to the other. But with, with the cap, since, since everyone was uploading their production measurements to the cloud, we could see exactly who was producing what. And, and since the, in the cap, your ongoing rating is based on the accuracy and precision of your dyings, everybody wanted to, to stay level four or above. So everyone was staying right in that cluster. So we, could, we literally, there was one program, we, we took fabric from four different dye houses, sent it to the same garment factory, and they were basically mixing lots and cutting it, and there was no shading within the garment. Wow. So that that in my view that that proved the 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 value of of a digital process. Um, um, color is subjective, you know. Depending on, I mean, the most important thing about color is which colors you choose. If you choose ugly colors, it doesn't care. It doesn't matter how well you replicate them because <laughs> they're not going to sell. They're but, accurate, though. Yeah, exactly. Deadly accurate. But but the 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 problem that we encountered at um, initially at J.C. Penney and and we continued to um, to fight with at Under Armour was okay. What if there is a legitimate reason you can't match that color? Because of a particular substrate, or you know the 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 dyes and you know the, the the dyes you use in reactives versus dispersed dyes, you know you're getting unavoidable metamorphism, or it's at a gamut. What do we do about that? Well, at, at Penny's, we 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 hired a, a woman named Donna Faber who had extensive background in the dye industry, and and this was I mean she loved this crap. I mean she she could figure out. Um, all of the technical issues and could advise mills on what to do. If they couldn't match, she'd say, we'll try this dye combination. Generally it worked, but you know, not every brand has a, an expert like that. And when at Under Armour, you know, we were basically taxing the, the technical resources at the TIFIC, you know, because the mills are just covering them up. So, so basically we said, you know, what we really need to know up front is, is this color feasible? And in other words, can I can I match it? Can I have an acceptable metamorphism from one you know one substrate to the other? Is it within the gamut of a dye class? And if I if I can match it, will I will I hit the fastest requirements of of each of the fabrics and, and fiber types? 
So we, we challenged Natific and, and Andreas Roth and, and those guys came up with what they call voodoo. Uh, was, Swiss don't know how the hell to market their stuff. They come up with these silly ass names, but, but nonetheless, it was like voodoo in that it was like magic and it actually, it actually worked. And I mean, I remember the first time they presented it to us, we had a palette of like, I don't know, a hundred colors, something like that. And they ran it through the voodooizer and they said, you know, <laughs> over half of your colors, you're going to have technical issues with. Either you're not going to be able to match them or you're going to have faster issues, so you're going to have to approve them off shade. And so then they, they did the correction. And what, what voodoo is, it basically takes the color, your color in a primary luminate. And first it says, can I match it under primary luminate? And then it takes, okay, can I match it in a secondary luminate? And if you can't match it in secondary luminate, then it basically screws around with the shape of the curve. So the match is consistent in primary. Maybe it moves to a different shade in secondary. So they, they basically, they, they, they came back with their corrections. And all but two colors, they, they, they corrected the standards so that the standards were matchable. And then with the cap... That's the keystone to the whole idea is you are, the mill is evaluated based on how well it matches a digital standard. And so if you send them a standard that, that it's impossible to match for technical reasons, they're, they're going to be outside of tolerance, their rating is going to drop, and they're going to be penalized. So it's, it's not fair to them to, you know, to, you know, change the rules. So, so voodalization by changing, modifying the standards made it, um, gave a target that everybody could hit. And when you, when you think about what they actually did, they were forecasting best can do's. Instead of waiting, you know, you know, three, four submits and then pull them all out and see which one you can live with, they're basically saying, this color will never be any better than this shade. And, and we did some, um, you know, some evaluations after the fact, and sure enough, um, a lot of stuff that we had passed as best can do's in the past, once we compared it with the, with the voodoo replacement standard, the best can do's actually matched that standard. So they, all we did was flip the process on his head. So you, you get rid of the, the exceptions, you deal with them at the beginning, and you, t you ask the designer, can you live with this, with this variant shade? And if they can, great. If they can't, then they change, they change the color. So uh, that, that became... The whole idea uh, behind behind um, digital color, and so m meanwhile at at Under Armour, I was I was managing a fabric team too, and and a performance brand like Under Armour, when they're saying that they're making all athletes better, it's usually accomplished through the material. I mean, the colors make them feel good, and, and the colors make them buy the garment, but it's the performance factors wicking and heat retention is kind of stuff as a vehicle of fabric. So working with some guys, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of presence from NC state graduates on this team. And we started looking at fabric and, you know, color is easy. I mean, quite, quite frankly, I'm, I'm really surprised that in 2020, we don't have better adoption of digital color management across the industry. Hmm. Um, the way I see it, it's been done. There's a, path there and with covid you know perhaps it's the impetus you know for some check writers to say okay we're going to follow this process for that 
there was, you know, as we implemented this program in the past, there was concern among some quarters, basically the, the color team that, well, if you have digital color, then I'm going to lose my job. I mean, I, I, I really hate sitting in the light box, but at least it's a paycheck. And, and the way we looked at it was we're eliminating a, 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 a grunt work, you know, tasks that nobody really wants to do. It's boring as heck. It's tedious. And we're going we're gonna to introduce a higher class of problem. So instead of looking at a lab dip, you know, Marielle Newman, who was a, a colorist at, at Under Armour, she became, um, she started looking at color analytics. She started evaluating the, the data in the color warehouse every day to look for trends, whether they were, you know, if were colors going off shade, were, when we introduced a new color, was, did it introduce any technical problems? So all of a sudden, the, the colorist becomes a, a, a bigger value add to the team by looking at things that really impact the product that the customer is going to see. So that's yeah, I see the 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 opportunity with digitalization and color is to add more value, and in in times when it's proven that you don't need to be sitting in front of a light box or in an office, anything that you can add to your list of capabilities is going to keep you at the company or return you from furlough based on whatever the situation is. So you know it's uh, there's value in that. So. We can do it for color. So I started looking at fabric. I mean, fabric is, it's a set of variables. So the, the challenge was, could we do this for fabric? You know, can we, could we digitize fabric? Could we create a QTX for fabric? Not for the color that goes on the fabric, but for the fabric itself. And, um, and that's, that's basically what I started working on right before I left um, Under Armour, and um, and ultimately that's that's what I'm doing today. That is really interesting, Keith. I mean, really, uh, it's it's really neat to hear the timeline and the, the progression of of thought and 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 action. And even though it's you know it was over several years, um, so I think I think that's really great. So what. You're now at Black Swan Textiles, but I know that the concept of Black Swan um, is its own term, and I read everything about Nassim Nicholas Talib that I, that I want to know about. <laughs> and, um, but if you could explain that to us, um, I think that would be kind of an eye-opener to, um, sure. to the audience. Yeah, I, I, first, I first came across his Black Swan theory back I think around 2010, 2011, something like that. And it was a LinkedIn post. I mean, somebody said, oh, Black Swan. And I thought it was a cool name. So uh, yeah, design background. But so I read it. And, and basically, the Black Swan theory is that um, the, the major events, the major improvements or, or changes throughout history have been a result of... Um, what we'll say revolution, not evolution. They've been, they, they haven't been gradual changes that improve things like a, a developmental approach. They've been, you know, kind of like comets hitting dinosaurs types of things that change the environment. And, you know, and he's, and so basically for a black swan event to, to be legit, it has to be 
based on something out of the ordinary, a crazy idea or or a pandemic or, or, or you know crazy things like that but but in this case I you know I think that digital color was a black swan event because it was a crazy idea all of a sudden you didn't need to look at a swatch of color and you could make a decision on it and you could do it um, you could do it anywhere in the world and you could do it in vast numbers so that was a crazy idea and when we first implemented that um, back in the 90s there were people saying oh no 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 I that's you, know, you just that's sacred ground. You just don't do that, and so there was the, the resistance wasn't necessarily rational resistance. There weren't people saying that oh you know the the uh, the delta E CMC equation is not as good as as delta E two thousand, and they weren't talking that. They're just saying it's it's basically heresy. So, but it when we introduced it at Target, first our our first approval rate skyrocketed. Um, the mills basically acknowledged that working from a digital standard was better than working from a physical standard. So it became, it quickly became uh, acceptable and produced positive results. So we got the results that nobody thought you could get. And then it, then it kind of becomes the new norm. And everybody said, oh, yeah, I knew that. Well, as if. But, but, it, but it, it did take off and it did become... Um, quite the topic in the early 2000s. You know, there wasn't an AATCC event where there wasn't, you know, a series of presentations on digital color. And it became a way for brands to improve their processes. It became a way for instrument companies to sell instruments and software and all this kind of stuff. So the reason it's called Black Swan is um, everybody knew that all swans were white. Um, There was a a Roman poet that wrote about an idea that was so stupid, it was like a black swan. And then in 1697, a black swan was discovered in Australia. So new facts undermine certainty. So I thought that was a cool name at the time. And we were, we were moving through different changes, whether it was the internet or email or digital color. So I figured that's not a bad, bad idea. And so um, when I, interviewed at Under Armour for this color and material position, I said, you know, color's a piece of cake. I mean, it's kind of like Groundhog Day. What I'm really interested in doing is, is seeing if we can figure out a way to change how, how apparel is made and where apparel is made. And so I did a presentation that I called the third black swan. And first black swan was when we introduced digital color at Target. Second black swan was when we introduced cap at JCPenney. And the third black swan was um, designing digitally and moving the apparel industry either back to the U.S. or closer to where the products were being sold. Um, And I I pitched it to um, the co-founder of Under Armour, and he just... He just looked at me and said, you know, you're crazy. This is <laughs> the craziest thing I've ever heard. And then um, a week later, um, there, was a, there was a meeting, a, a, a VP meeting, and, uh, and Kevin Plant, KP, was talking to everybody. And he's talking about, you know, the positive impact of Under Armour and all this kind of stuff. And he says, you know, what if we could, what if we could move apparel manufacturing back to the U.S. And what if we could Im- impact people's jobs? And, and Kip Fawkes, who I proposed it to, yells out, Black Swan, baby! 
and, <laughs> and, and so that's cool. Wow, that's pretty cool. And it, it took a it took a year or so, but um, Under Armour eventually built the the lighthouse, which was a facility focused on advanced manufacturing and digitalization. Um, and you know that was uh, that was kind of a high point because you don't necessarily see ideas like that adopted very frequently. But I, I continue to believe that this is the the biggest opportunity that um, that we're going to see. And and you know we're we're actually although it kind of sucks to live through COVID, we're living we're living in a time that there is the opportunity to have a major impact on an industry. The peril is. $2.5 trillion in sales globally every year. In the U.S., it's roughly $330 billion in sales. And yet it is one of the most primitive industries out there as far as technology, especially at the garment factory. Um, the Second oldest profession. Yeah, well, <laughs> something like that. Uh, the, the latest innovation in sewing was at the end of the 18th century when they moved the hole from the top of the needle to the bottom of the needle and they could use it in a sewing machine and not much has changed in the sewing machine since then. <laughs> so, um, so it was, it was an opportunity to, to get moving, um, along those lines. The lighthouse, um, had partners, um, industry partners who, you know, would, um, participate in the development of this new technology. Uh, Siemens was one of them. And so when I left um, Under Armour in, in 2017 to start Black Swan, you know, I, I started talking to the folks that I had known through, um, through the lighthouse and um, to see what their interest was in pursuing other areas. By that time, lighthouse was, was focusing on footwear. Um, footwear is more of a rigid product, whereas fabrics are floppy and present certain problems for automation. But um, that's, you know, first couple of years in Black Swan consulting on digital product creation. Um, digital product creation, 3D. Uh, you th think about that. Everybody, everybody thinks that the output of, of 3D is a, a really cool um, rendering on a computer. And it is. But you make that 3D image the same way you make a real garment. You have to have a pattern set, the shape of the pieces that are that are cut and sewn together. You have to have a fabric, some type of representation of fabric, and you have to have color. So you have to you have to have digital components for each of those three things. Color, piece of cake. All you got to do is plug in spectral data, and the mills. We we've proven that the mills can work with that. The, the the pattern files they've convert to a a format called DXF, which is kind of a generic format um, that can be imported into or imported into Gerber and Lectra and and those systems. There are some issues with that as far as <clears throat> how much of the the detail they they retain, but th those can be managed. But when it came down to it. Um, you're looking at you're looking at a bill of materials or a tech pack or whatever it is that a brand sends to a factory, and maybe they describe fabric as like a five ounce uh, polycotton fleece, or maybe they call it you know a rustic this or that. So there's these design names, kind of like 
you know, the goofy color names that you and I have seen. And maybe they'll throw in, okay, it's a knit or it's a woven. And if it's a knit, maybe it's a jersey and an interlock. But then all of a sudden you start getting these, these goofy names that are brand specific. Um, and at the best you can hope for is if the brand is working with a particular mill, they're going to say, we're going to nominate this mill's fabric. An article number is one, two, three, four, five, whatever. So they're pointing to a specific fabric. So as long as the garment factory buys that specific fabric, then it's good. But if you, if, if you do your product development based on fabrics out of Asia, and all of a sudden you want to produce a garment in Central America, then, then you have to move. And um, replicating fabrics is harder than developing new fabrics. Developing new fabrics, you just, you just churn until you see something you like. If I don't know what I want, but I'll know it when I see it or when I run out of time. But when you dual source or multi-source a fabric, those fabrics have to be the same. Um, and not just they have to look the same at the point of inception, but they have to wear the same. So from a customer experience, if I've, you know, I've worn this garment, you know, washed it 20 times, so I'm buying a new one. And all of a sudden, this, uh, the second time I watch this, uh, this new one, it's peeling like crazy. Well, what's different? It's supposed to be the same fabric. So you, you've really got to start digging down. And, yeah. <laughs> so, 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 so basically we, um, we approach fabric like we approach color, you know, what are the components of it? Um, how do you combine those components and, and how do you manage those components? Um, so, so black swan is, is, you know, we're, we're currently working on, um, digitizing fabrics. So, I mean, that would be, to me, that sounds like a, a massive database. And is that basically what it's kind of based on? Uh, yes and no. Um, it starts with, um, we, have to, we have to get a collection of fabrics. We have to actually get the physical fabrics. And then we have to know how those fabrics are made. So we've partnered with SwissTex. Um, a mill out in California, probably one of the best. Very good one. Yeah. yeah, one of the best that you're, you'll come across. And, um, you know, they were super supportive when we implemented the cap. And so we went back there and said, you know, we'd like digitized fabric. And so, the, you know, they're, they're providing us fabric for, for analysis. And when we digitize a fabric, there's six things we're looking at. The, the first two are related um, the appearance the surface appearance of the fabric not stripes or solid just you know what does the construction look like so that construction appearance and then actually what is the construction so how do you how does a how does a mill actually make the fabric so we're basically taking the actual appearance and figuring out what the correlation is to machine settings and yarn selection so that's the first two the third attribute hand the first thing that you do you, when you pick up that fabric, you, you pick it up and you feel it and, and you know, maybe it feels yummy, maybe it feels dry, maybe it feels slick, who knows? I mean, so many goofy. There's worse words to describe hand than there are for color. <laughs> but at least color, there are standardized words. I mean, red means red. And unless you're, you have major issues, it's not green. Whereas um, hand 
it's all over the map. And then you're trying to translate that to overseas, um, and it's, it's a problem. And so it's a super important attribute. So we figure, well, if we can digitize color, we can, we can digitize hand. Um, the, the next one is drape. Drape needs to be digitized for the 3D programs to work. They're, they create their physics files so that, that that simulation of a fabric can fall over an avatar in a similar manner to how it actually falls over a human. So drape and hand are also closely related. In most other industries, they're treated the same, but we, you know, in, in, in apparel, we, we, we split them apart. So we've identified a couple companies that are successfully digitizing hands, hand and, and drape either theoretically or to support other industries. They're uh, in, in, the, in the paper industry, um, before a producer can ship toilet paper to Costco, they have to measure a sample of that toilet paper on an instrument and upload those measurements to the cloud so that they, they, they can show that they're in compliance with that hand spec. And yeah, I mean, the, the way that paper feels is so important when you consider it's end use, so to speak. <laughs> so, so, so to speak. Yeah. So, you know, it, we've demonstrated that other industries have solved this problem based on their requirements. So, you know, how, how much of those, those models are transferable over to textiles? So we're looking at that now. Um, the, the next attribute, performance, the, the typical testing that you do at, at Intertech or BV. Um, but rather than testing just for the requirements of the category that that fabric's going into, um, we basically, we have a, a protocol of tests that cover most end uses. So we want to characterize the fabric so I can search against a fabric database and say, show me all the fabrics that are suitable for yoga pants. So there's probably going to be, a, there'll be an opacity measurement in there so that, um, you know, the yoga people aren't embarrassed. Or if it's for a football jersey, you don't want the, the jersey ripping in the middle of a, of a, a play on national TV. So there, there are test methods already in place around this stuff. So we want to characterize a fabric. The, 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 the story you know, I, I keep thinking of is the original Under Armour tight shirt was, was actually made out of fabric that had traditionally been for lingerie. And you know, had you gone by the conventional wisdom, <laughs> you're not going to use a lingerie fabric for a for a macho garment, but it, the fabric didn't know it was that it was just for lingerie. So basically, you look at it for end use, and that was it's a, it's a digital specification. And finally, the last attribute: manufacturing feasibility. Um, that's data that you pull out of a a, a machine that that tracks knitting speed or tracks um, defects per thousand yards so that we're, we're actually pulling data out of the machine that gives that gives us some insight into how complex it is to make a fabric today that metric really doesn't exist except in the minds of of some guys at the mill but in essence we we want to make that data available so that when someone is determining what fabric to use they're looking at more than just cost and more just logistics what is the 
total performance we're looking at. If this, there was a, a fabric that um, we replicated one time to get rid of a, a yarn problem. And, and so we came up with, we, we created the fabric with some different yarns, but it turns out that the machine that the fabric was created on was a much slower knitting machine than the old one. So we traded one um, obstacle for another. And, and so if you have insight into this, it basically the feasibility metric is, is kind of a red, yellow, green thing. And then you can dig into it and say, okay, what makes this red or what makes this yellow? And it'll say oh, it's knitting speed or it's quality, you know, um, uh, repeatability, this kind of stuff. So these are basically six attributes that we're looking at. So right now, um, a product called M2K. And what M2K does is it, it provides a recipe to make a circular knit. Um, if you look at circular knitting machines, which the majority of knits are produced on, you've got flat knitting machines that are electronic that are driven by software, and then you have circular knitting machines that were invented in the 19th century, and they look surprisingly the same today that they did then. <laughs> and there's, when you set up a circular knitting machine, you're, there's a guy with an Allen wrench and some tools, and he's moving cams and dials around because these it's a mechanical device. These, these pieces direct where the needles and the yarn go when it's, when it's creating fabric. And it takes basically 30 hours to set up a, 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 um, a machine. And so when a brand is working with a mill, the mill isn't just working on a piece of lab equipment like they are in color. They're actually working on a production machine. And they're basically taking that machine out of commission to do this development it could take up to five iterations. And when you factor in the time it takes just to set the machine up and then do the knitting and evaluate it and then put it in the mail and blah, 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 you're talking right. about months of time. And it's, it's, it's expensive time because that machine, if it were available for production, would be generating revenue instead of, instead of a liability. So um, the thing is, this is kind of a disruptive technology because if you go out today fabric is kind of magic i mean there's each each technician you know with years of experience he gets a fabric to to analyze he'll pull out his pick glass or maybe put it under a microscope and he'll he'll look at the loop structure and he'll count courses in whales and do all those kinds of calculations and he'll scribble down notes on on how to you know symbols that that represent how to set up a machine. And maybe he's right. Maybe he's close. Maybe it's his best guess. But chances are you send the same, you send the same fabric to, to multiple mills, you're going to get multiple recipes. So what M2K does is basically we take an image of a circular knit front and back. We run it through an algorithm, and it spits out the diagram of how to set up that machine, and it gives you a yarn specification. And like like in seconds. So this is this is the equivalent of a spec photometer in in essence that it, that it, it spits out a an objective definition and it's it's a recipe that if you're going to multi-source you can send the digital recipe up to multiple mills they don't have to go through the development they as long as they follow your instructions then you're going to get equivalent fabric and and we have done some some trials that were we're, we've sent the same recipe without a header card, without any swatches to various mills and say, make this fabric. 
and it came back in voila. So we, that was, that's what I was going to ask. But I didn't want to ask the gotcha question, but I was going to ask if you if you try that, try that. Yeah, we, and basically, it's going to be a, a very harsh test when you know we're when we get to the commercialization stage of M2K because the way we can prove we'll prove it is we'll go to a mill, say, show me a fabric, and it's a fabric that they know how they make, and we're going to basically scan it, and we're going to say it's made this way, and we're either right or wrong. Now, one of the things that you got to watch out for, I mean, it's, it's true in color and it's certainly true in fabric. If a mill sends out a fabric to a brand and they put information about how this fabric made, it's probably wrong. Yeah. It's probably, probably wrong for a reason because they don't want people knocking them off. Right. It so, wasn't really 26 singles cotton. You know? Exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> just, just like that dye recipe is not, not really what it, I say yeah. either. So, you know, there's, this, there's a certain amount of, um, of peeking behind the veil, and you know, here's what's really going on, and and some people will be threatened by this. But but here again, think of what the opportunity is. If there's a means to digitize a mill's fabric library, and you know, mills have libraries of thousands of fabrics that they've developed, you know, you know either production fabrics or stuff that they produce for fabric fairs or whatever, and they're sitting in a room somewhere. And they've done their best to try to organize them, but it's hard to organize a multi-dimensional fabric in an analog process. We've heard this from the mills themselves. Uh, they know that they'll get a new fabric to, to develop, and somebody will say, oh, yeah, I remember doing something like that. They just can't find it, so they start over. So if every fabric they've created is digitized, then basically it becomes searchable. Just I can I can do a color search. I measure in red, and I look at the the Pantone library, and sure enough, here's five closest colors. It's the same idea. Whether you're searching for an exact fabric match, or you're you're searching for maybe three of the four attributes, or maybe the only thing you're interested in is I want a signature hand for all of my shirts, and hand is such a subjective thing how do you get the hand of a of a polyester to match that of a cotton well you reduce it to numbers so you can start doing fabric development by by signature attributes like hand uh, or maybe um, you're going to use multiple fabrics in a garment you want them to drape similarly so rather than just kind of guessing and crossing your fingers you can actually search for fabrics that that meet those requirements so there's there's certainly you know, we've heard from the mills, we'd love to be able to do this because we want to be able to analyze our, our libraries. Um, and if you can digitize a library, then it becomes an online menu. Because if they can search their own library, then, then they can give rights to brands to search their libraries. When they're trying to replicate a fabric because of, you know, CSR issues somewhere in the world, or they're trying to, you know, they, they have a program, they want to move, they want to reshore. Well, how do we communicate the specs to the mills in this region? So, you know, this becomes, it's a selling tool. Uh, a fabric library today is a liability because of all the costs that's gone into it. This allows them to monetize this, sell off of it, and basically, they can limit the, the exposure. I mean, certain fabrics, maybe they develop, they develop with a, a, a premier brand that they don't want the rest of the world to know about. 
they just they don't put them in there. So that's our second product, the the Arsenal. It's a digital library of fabrics that um, serves both the needs of of the brand and of the mill. And and one last thing on that. Um, when I was at Under Armour, we we were doing color palette consolidation. Uh, there were too many colors in the palette in a given season, and there's all kinds of tools to to do that. You know, you can bring in the entire palette. You can plot it in color space. You can start looking for, you know, minimum delta E and this kind of stuff. And so we could do palette consolidation all day, all day long. And so the fabric guys were looking down their nose at the color team thinking, oh, you guys, too many colors. So I said, okay, number one selling color at Under Armour, black. How many fabrics was that on in one season? Well, it was a ridiculously high number. So sure. you want to consolidate all your materials. And, you know, if there, are, if there are this X number of fabrics that are truly distinguishable to the customer or that, that carry some feature with them, fine. But I doubt it. And there's all kinds of advantages of consolidating um, fabrics from, you know, pricing considerations to... Um, logistics and availability and all this kind of stuff. So basically, we're levering, you're pulling the same levers to manage fabric digitally that we use to manage color. Yep. It's interesting. It's, it's really just an, an outgrowth of, um, of like specification sheets and just, you know, how much specification do you put into it? Um, and if you put enough into it, you can duplicate uh, the fabric. Right. So that's, uh, that's fascinating. And I, Keith, I got to tell you, that was the easiest interview I've ever done because I didn't ask any questions. All you did was tell us about things, and that's great. That's great. I mean, it was really fascinating. I got to tell you, really interesting stuff. Cool. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna look here to see if there's any questions from the from the Facebook crowd. I don't know if there are. I, I never told people that they could do it, so then we might get some questions later on, and I can send them. I can forward them to you. Sure. But um, just a great conversation. I, I really enjoyed that, Keith. That was great. Well, and, and here again, everything we're doing today is based on what I learned in color. So I always used to say color is the most important thing in the world. I'll continue to say that. Uh, you right. got to have a fabric to put it on, but uh, nevertheless, right. it's, uh, it's the big deal. Yeah, and, and and it's interesting what you said, and I probably heard you say it before, but that you know it's it's easy, it's been done already, and we're still kind of uh, reinventing the wheel all the time. Um, you know, certainly, okay, some people might not be ready to be all digital, but you know, some kind of homogenization between um, you know physical and, and digital is 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 possible for anybody, right? Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it, it validates um, you know what your eyes see. And, 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 you know, Mitch, the, the, the thing is, right now, everybody's, well, everybody's been talking about speed for years now, but, but they're serious about it now. Uh, you, you know, the, the, uh, having a, yeah, and plus with a pandemic, uh, it proves that certain things can be done differently. So, you know, this will be an enabling event that all of a sudden, you know, you start looking at technology and there may be an initial investment in the technology, but you look at the long-term payoff um, and it it allows you to profit and it takes, it gets rid of the whole problem of forecasting 12 months out. Because if, if you can actually go from design to product in store in a few weeks, 
that's that's game changer. So what what we're looking at the final aspect of this is okay. F- fabric is a component of a garment. So what's a better way to design a garment today? The 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 all of the products out there start with a two D pattern. So the way a factory works because they're building a garment, they make a two D pattern, and then they make a proto, and then they make adjustments based on looking at proto. So that's basically how the software is modeled. So it's it's difficult to transition from a creative designer who's been working in Illustrator or hand sketching or whatever. All of a sudden, they've got to start thinking in terms of 2D patterns, and they have to learn this technology that, at the end of the day, is, is pretty cool, but it's, it's a barrier to adoption because it is such a, a high jump. So we're looking at software that you don't start with patterns. You basically start with a bag over an avatar or something like it. And then by using some super interactive tools, you start tapering, you're sculpting what that garment looks like. You're not really worried about the fabric yet. You're looking about what is that garment going to look like? And, and it's a super interactive, intuitive thing. And then you start messing around with the drape of the fabric. So, you know, with some sliders, you can make it heavier or lighter or whatever. And at some point, you're applying texture. You say, I love it. You click approve. It generates a 2D pattern set. It doesn't start with it. It finishes with it. So start designing, end with a spec. And then you take the, the draping. You know, while you've been adjusting the drapes, you're adjusting numbers in the background. I mean, you don't know it, but numbers are changing. And it basically looks up, it goes to the arsenal, to the, to the digital fabric library, and it identifies a fabric that meets those requirements. And so basically, you end up with a fabric instead of starting with one. Right. So from a, from a point of view of, of supporting how a designer works, it's, it's a much better tool. And I think that what digitalization is going to change is, in, in the old world, the big brands had the they had the advantage because they had sourcing offices overseas and they had teams of people who could track stuff in spreadsheets and they could do all this crap. And, and the little guys were stuck. They could only use fabrics with minimum order quantities of X and, and they couldn't get into the good factories. Well, if everything's driven by spec and if you're using a software, which is in essence a product digital twin, if you're able to model that fabric, not only the way it looks, but what its components are and the costing of it, then you actually have a spec that is at least as good, if not better, than most brands send out today. And you can go to a, a factory. There are ways that you can get around MOQs based on insight. If you're, if you're searching a Mills library and you're specifying, okay, I like that fabric, maybe that fabric is scheduled for a production run uh, in the next week. So you can just add on yards to an existing order. So this brings up all kinds of opportunities. Um, the, uh, the the inventor of this new software, her name's Andrea Quake, she likens the advent of this technology to, in terms of evolution, that there was this Cambrian explosion where certain things changed in, in, in evolution and life took off. And so Literally, that's what's happening here. I mean, this isn't just about shortening lead time or getting rid of protos. This is about all kinds of business opportunities for apparel that people aren't even thinking about today. So it's kind of cool to be, you know, in on the, the ground floor of this and, yeah. and um, you know, seeing what happens. I could see how, how uh, excited you are and how exciting it could be. 
So basically, we're, we're going we're gonna to jumble two different concepts here. We have a Cambrian explosion through and <laughs> through intelligent design. So it's uh, yeah. I think the I think the 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 piece that you're going to have to get through is that designers fear that they're going to lose their um, you know their their ability to design. You know that it's all going to be numbers and whatnot. It's not that way, and and, and color has proven that out. Uh, it really doesn't uh, doesn't take away anybody's creativity. Uh, it, and, and it, makes, it makes it happen. Really, that we've heard that over and over again. And and when you think about it, there's a certain element of truth in that in in the current system because if I have to start my design based on an existing design, then that kind of takes the creativity out. Basically, I'm reconfiguring an existing style. So that's the yeah. that's the process that the current technology supports. And and actually, not a bad process in some cases because, you, you know, stuff at the, um, at the outlets or, or whatever, they drive a lot of revenue for, for brands regardless of product grade. Yeah. So, but if you yeah. can introduce another means to design that that's going to push the the design element forward and give the ability to designer not to be stuck in reconfiguring but actually imagining new stuff i think that's what's going to take off and 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 lead to kind of a, a new renaissance using uh digitalization i'm just trying i'm just checking to see if there was any questions um on facebook um i don't see any I might not be looking in the right place either. No, I think I'm going to. Uh, I think I'm going to wrap it up then. Cool, Keith. Again, that was fascinating. I really, I learned a lot, and I'm sure everybody uh, listening did too. So, um, I really, I really thank you, and I really thank you for your time and and all the uh, effort that you put into it. I really appreciate it. Sure. Thanks for the thanks for the forum, Mitch. I appreciate being included. That was great. I appreciate it. Thanks, Keith. Take care. All right. See ya. Be well. Bye-bye.